Today, we're just titling this, What is the Gospel of the Cross? And you would think that would be a pretty cut and dry thing, but it really is not. Uh, the way some people explain the cross, uh, it's almost uh, like we have to apologize for even being born. Uh, the view of God, how I many know since the fall of man in the, in the garden has been a cracked, distorted view. It'd be like you trying to look at yourself in a cracked or broken mirror. You can still see, but you're not seeing clearly. And how many knows that sin has broken things? It's broken us, and our view of God has been really distorted. In the Scripture, 2 Corinthians, I just want to read the first uh, portion of uh, verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and in verse 5, and uh, as we say, we're just going to read the A portion of that verse, the beginning portion, and then I'm going to pause, and then we'll read the rest of it in just a moment. The Bible says, Paul writing to the church at Corinth here, and he says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. And then he says this word, test yourselves. This is the New King James Version. So examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith and test yourselves. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We do thank you for the power that is the power to transform lives, the power of the Holy Spirit. We bless you today for your word. Illumine our minds and our hearts. Renew our minds by the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word. Let faith, Lord God, come alive in us today to see you as you truly are. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Turn around, shake somebody's hand, give them a big smile. Tell them welcome to Grace Point before you sit down this morning. I, uh, I do want to say what an what a honor it is to have our spiritual daughter, Vicki Smith, from Tennessee with us this weekend. Amen. We love you, Vicki. And uh, Paul had his Timothy. I got my Vicki. Hallelujah. So we, we're, she's staying with us a couple of days. We're so honored always to have her, and we love her so much. Um, the Bible here says to examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Um, so I just thought we would do that. You didn't know you was going to get a test, did you? Uh, I'm not going to examine you. The Bible says you examine yourself. You ready? How many of you in here, now, come on now, this will go faster and be better if you participate. How many of you, seriously, how many of you in here right now believe that you're just as righteous as me? Could you, would you raise your hand? Some of you don't know where to raise your hand. Some of you are not raising your hand. So. All right, let me do another one. That was one test. How many of you in here truly, honestly, honesty is required for this test to work, okay? All right, here we go. How many of you believe that you're just as righteous as Mother Teresa ever was? Okay. How many of you in here believe with all your heart, sincerity, honestly before God, that you are just as righteous as the Apostle Paul ever was. Okay? Hands down. Last test here. How many of you believe that right now, this morning, in this exact moment, sitting in Grace Point Church in Valdosta, Georgia, that you are just as righteous as Jesus Christ is righteous? Really? Really? Amen. 
I need to ask again, how many of you believe that you're just as righteous as Jesus Christ is righteous? Really? How many of you think that the people that just raised their hand are kind of not just quite? I'm going to quit messing with you. Listen, I'm not trying to make you feel bad or uncomfortable or anything like that. But there's just no better way for me to get my point across. If you don't know that you're as righteous as Jesus Christ, then you've missed the whole point of grace. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad if you didn't raise your hand because that's why you come to church to learn. Now, most of us have never, including the one that's preaching this morning, grown up thinking that I would have never thought, even for several decades of being a Christian, that I was ever close to the righteousness of Mother Teresa, the Apostle Paul, and surely not as righteous as Jesus. But I thought that maybe one day, when I died and went to heaven, I would at least be as righteous enough to get by the pearly gate. To be able to hear him say, enter into the, to the joys of the Lord. But I would have never thought that I would have any kind of true righteousness right now in the here and now. I thought it was in the, out there in the glory land by and by after a while kind of a deal. And I know that some of you here today feel the same way because you didn't raise your hand. And I loved it when you didn't raise your hand, even as I asked a question, you were doing like when they give you the pop test and you don't know the answers, you start looking around at other people's pages. Because you, you don't know whether to raise your hand or not. You just don't know. One thing I admire about you, because you didn't know, you didn't raise your hand. But I don't know why you didn't know. Now, notice that I kept a word out of the, the question. I didn't ask you how many of you feel, feel, righteous as Jesus how many of you feel as righteous as you perceive that mother Teresa was or the apostle Paul or even me how many of you uh pop test here here comes another one how many of you know that how many of you let me say it this way how many of you believe that you're as close to God as I am really I don't know whether to take that as a compliment or an insult. <laughs> you ever heard people that trying to, they're saying they're trying to get closer to the Lord? Closer? You ever heard Christians say that, Brother Dale, I'm just trying to be closer to the Lord? Or you ever heard Christians say that I'm closer to God today than I've ever been? Meaning that last year you shouldn't have saw me then because I wasn't very close. You know what religion does? It helps you to get Christians like you have Christians into categories and groups. You have A Christians, B Christians, C, D, and then maybe L failing Christians. But there's no such thing as any of that. I'm not trying to bother you, but this is what you get here is the Word of God. You can't, if you're, if you're born again, what did the Bible say that made you close to God? A hint is in Ephesians. And Paul said it. He said, one time you were far away from God. You were outside the commonwealth, he said, of Israel. You were strangers and sojourners. And he says, you were without Christ in this world. 
and you were without hope. Remember that? This is not even in the sermon. This ain't even in the This is all free. <laughs> and he said, but, but. Now, he told him that's how you were before you met Christ. But now, he said, you have been made nigh. That's New King James, King James language, near. By what? By your efforts? Because you pray a lot. Because you don't miss church. Because you tithe and give. What makes you nigh to the Lord, it says? Paul said, for you have now been made nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ. So what made you nigh or close or near to God? The blood of Jesus. Not you. Not your effort. Not you standing on your spiritual tippy toes trying harder. See, being close to God, there's no such thing as being closer to God. See how quiet it is in our Catholic church? Love the Catholics. I'm just being silly. See, but see, you see how quiet that does? I mean, why does that make you quiet like that? See, because religion has done that to you. Coming to the wrong church to hear the wrong message has done that to you. Because you think you can get closer to God. How would, a, how would the average Christian think they can get closer to God? By trying harder. Setting the alarm clock 30 minutes earlier and getting up and praying every day. That will make me closer to God. Reading my Bible twice a day, surely that will make me closer to God. Being nice and sweet, kinder to people, that'll make me closer to God. If I give to a mission endeavor, that'll surely make me closer to God. Because God loves missions. See, all of that is religion and none of that is true. I'm just trying to get you to see today that all this stuff that we wrestle over, to me the most subtle weapon that the devil uses against a believer, a believer now, is this feeling of unworthiness. This feeling that I'm unworthy. And it's his greatest weapon against a believer because a feeling of unworthiness will produce a lack of faith in that believer. It will remove your confidence in God. And so when I read verses like we started out with today in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, that verse used to trouble me greatly. Let's put it back on the screen because it said, let us examine yourselves. And then it says to test yourselves. And when I would read that, I, would, uh, I just didn't like the verse. Because how the verse, if it ever was quoted or said or preached to me growing up in church, it was, are you really saved? Are you, are you sure that you're really, really, truly saved? You need to test yourself and see. You need to examine yourself. And this is what they told me to examine myself for. Examine myself for sin. The other most popular place that you hear the word examine yourselves uh, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when it's talking about the communion. Y'all have that one for me? Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy, un look at there, there's that word, unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of, of the Lord. Next verse. But let a man examine himself and let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, God will kill you dead right in the church on Excuse me, I got off there. He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner 
eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Next verse. For this reason, many of you are weak, sick, and some have even died. That's King James sleep. Some have died. Some have died. Well, I've put out some blogs on my site, commercial time, daleyoung.net. Things about grace, things that will help you. And uh, it's amazing how the different titles or different blogs or articles, that's what that means, you know, blog. I don't know what to call it blog, but anyway. I put up one some time ago that said uh, the title was uh, Good People Don't Go to Heaven, Only Perfect People Go to Heaven. Oh, the hell that that caused on my website. Oh, the comments that I deleted as it went out on Facebook. Because you know what people told me? How dare you? Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect but Jesus. Well, if you're not perfect, you're not going to heaven. Because God don't grade on a curve. A 70 with God's not passing. You don't pass with a 70 with God. You don't even pass with God with a 99. And if you could make a 99.9 with God, you would still fail. It takes 100 to perfection. And in case you wonder where I got that, I got it out of that Bible that you're holding in your lap. The first inaugural sermon of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, starts in Matthew 5. If you've got a red letter edition, it's all in red. Jesus said statements like this. He said, uh, he said your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees or you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Did he mean that? Now, the mo listen, the Jews that heard that, he's preaching law to those under the law. Galatians says that Christ was born under the law to redeem those under the law, that they might receive the adoption of sons. But here he says that your righteousness... In other words, you're going to have to be more righteous, he said, to go to heaven than the scribes and the Pharisees, which, by the way, the Jews were the most righteous people on the planet. They, they did all the rules keeping. and I mean, they were the holiest of the holy, the righteous of the righteous. And Jesus just said out of his mouth that you've got to be a lot more righteous than them if you ever think you're going to heaven with me. Is that what he said? And then if that, as if that wasn't enough, the last verse of that Matthew 5 chapter, he said, be ye perfect. And he said, if you want to define the, what, what, what I mean when I say perfect, he said, just like your heavenly father is perfect. In other words, he said, you're going to have to be as perfect as he is. And if you're not as perfect as God, he said, you're not going. So only perfect people go to heaven. Boy, y'all are quiet this morning. That's what he said. So this idea, like, go to the funeral and they get up and say he was a good person. Therefore, they're in heaven. It's just total religious junk. Really. It's just junk. He said, you got to be perfect. So if God's standard is perfection, if his standard is righteousness that exceeds the righteousness that ever, scribes and Pharisees ever thought, then how do we attain that? And then how, how do we deal with this feeling of unworthiness? And when scriptures like that in 2 Corinthians 5, what was it, 13, says, let us examine ourselves 
And then we get the examining verse again. Uh, examine yourself. Okay, if you're examining yourself to see whether you're in the faith or not, test yourself. Let me tell you what the Apostle Paul is not saying. He is not saying examine yourself to see if you're still a Christian. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying examine yourself and to look for sin. Like, like they raised us on the communion services. That we'll have communion next Sunday, by the way. And I won't get up and try to scare the Hades out of you and tell you that if you take this wrong, God's going to kill you dead. Well, isn't that what it says? Didn't it say that if you eat and drink of the communion of the Lord in an unworthy manner? I mean, isn't that what we just read? It didn't say God said, I'm going to get you for that. What is eating in an unworthy manner? What is partaking of the Lord's communion in an unworthy manner? How do you do that? And so what do we do at communion? We say, all right, let every man examine himself to see if there's sin in your life. And right before you leave your seat to come up here and receive communion, you better doggone be sure you've confessed it and repented of it. Because if you don't, you could be drinking, eating damnation. Now, how many just, come on now, be real with How many's ever kind of heard it put under that kind of a deal? Come on, raise your hand high if you've ever heard that. That's all lies. It's just all a lie. God, God what's, what's an unworthy manner? An unworthy manner is when you try to receive of the Lord's communion based on your righteousness, based on your effort, based on your goodness, what you've done. When Paul is saying in both places, 2 Corinthians 13 and 5, 1 Corinthians 11, when, both these places when he's talking about examining yourself, he's not talking about looking at yourself to see if you can find any sin in there. Can I go ahead and tell you, would anybody in the room that be easy to do? I, I could even look at you and find sin. Yeah. I could, I could go that. Ties a sin. No, that haircut's a sin. No, I'm just teasing. Listen, Eat, listen, even under the old covenant, how many knows we're under a new covenant? Better covenant, better promises. But listen, listen, even under the old covenant, that was an inferior covenant, the Bible says, a covenant that had fault because it depended upon the person to be right. Under, listen, under the old covenant, they didn't even examine themselves. For anything. When, an old, when under the old covenant, when a man would bring a lamb to, to the priest to sacrifice for his sin offering, he would bring the lamb, and as he stood there to offer the lamb, the priest would examine the lamb. Am I telling the truth? And they would thoroughly examine that lamb from nose to hooves, they would examine his wool, they would pull back, they'd open his mouth, and it had to be without flaw, without blemish. It couldn't be crippled, it couldn't be blind, it couldn't be halt. And, and several priests would have to examine the lamb. And if the lamb was to be found without blemish, without any defect, then the priest would declare this lamb is an acceptable sacrifice. And then when he did, he would nod to the man offering that lamb in affirmation. 
and every Jewish man knew what to do, he would lay his hand and actually lean his hand on the head of that lamb thereby symbolically symbolizing the transfer of his guilt, his sin, to that innocent animal. But what you didn't see, and what we have forgotten a lot, is in symbolically the righteousness and the innocence and the purity of that lamb, thereby was also being transferred or imputed, imparted to that man. That man would turn and walk away. That man could not have a tooth in his head. He could have not used personal deodorant and be smelly. But the priest didn't examine the man. They examined the lamb. And if the lamb was acceptable, that made the man acceptable. If the lamb was righteous, that made the man righteous. And listen to this. This is amazing. Under the old covenant, that man would turn, go back to his home, listen, and for the next 365 days, he was sin-free. Future sins had been taken care of for that year. And he could live that next 365 in right relationship with God without fear of wrath because of sin, because he had offered the sacrifice. So even under the old covenant, their sins were Push forward. They weren't removed, but they were pushed forward. In the New Testament, here we are under grace, and in most churches, people are reminded of their sins every Sunday. And under the old covenant, they weren't even reminded of them except yearly. And in fact, under the new covenant, if you don't know the Bible, you're reminded of them every day and almost every second of the day by a devil who seeks to destroy you and to listen and to generate in you a feeling of unworthiness to approach God. But that's not how the Bible says you come boldly before God. Why? Because you're not coming to a throne room of judgment. You're coming to a throne room of grace. And, and what, what do you find at that throne room of grace? To find help. To find help. What kind of help? Any kind of help you need. Any kind of help you need. That's what you find at the throne room of grace. See, religion through its cracked view of God has made God seem more as a judge to be feared than a father to be loved. We've missed it. And we have really missed it. So what about in, in that communion deal, man? It says people, you know, because of this, some are weak and sick, and some have even have died. But let me tell you what it doesn't say that religion taught you, that God killed them. Some are weak and sick. Do you know who are people that are weak and sick and some have died? Let me tell you how a good Christian can be weak and sick and even die. Not believe that God heals anymore. And so if you've got something that medical science can't help you with and you don't believe that God heals, therefore you're not going to ask him or seek any kind of help from the Lord, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to get weak and sick and you might even die. But what didn't happen is God didn't, God didn't kill you. See, that's a big difference. That's a huge difference. But if you don't recognize, discern the body of Christ, if you don't understand the benefits of him, of what, what he did on the cross, if you don't know, if you don't know that not only he, did he forgive of sin, but he took care of your, your sickness, then you won't benefit from that because you won't have the faith to believe and ask him and put yourself in a position to receive what grace has already freely provided for you. Man, isn't this some good stuff? 
preach it, Brother Dale. I believe I will. See, this is why it's called the gospel. Because gospel means good news. See, there ain't a bit of bad news in nothing I've told you. This is all good news. And when you read those verses that said, let a man examine himself, God's not telling you to look at yourself and see if you can find sin. He's saying to examine yourself to see if you see the sun. Now let's put back up first, uh, 2 Corinthians 13 and 5 back up there because examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And then this is that B portion of the verse that I want to see. Paul says, this is Paul's favorite expression. He'd done this so many times. Do you not know? Paul, that's how Paul preached. He would say that over and over. Do you not know? What he's saying is by now you should know this. And I can't believe that you do not know this because you should know this by now. By now you should know this. He says, know you not that your body is the temple of the Lord? Know you not that God don't live in tabernacles made with hands? No, you, he's always doing that. No, you not. Don't you know? By now you should know. He says, examine yourselves, test yourselves. And then he says, do you not know yourselves? See, I'm telling you what Brother Dale knows, but you got to know this for yourself. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Jesus Christ is in you. See, when you're examining yourself, what are you looking for? You're looking for Jesus. You're not examining yourself for sin. You're, you're examining yourself to see if you see Jesus indeed, unless indeed you are disqualified. Now, how can I disqualify what Jesus has qualified? How can I, by my performance or lack thereof, nullify, disqualify, or cancel out? If I, by my action, by my sin, let's be specific, if I, by my sinning, can disqualify myself after Jesus has qualified me. How many of you when you get born again, he qualifies you for heaven? But after you have been born again, if I can in turn then by something I do or don't do, disqualify myself, that makes my sin stronger than Jesus' blood. See that right there? Falls. Every day God gives me, I'm just going to keep preaching it. I'm going to be like Paul. Do you not know? <laughs> By now you should know. By now you should be able to say amen when I say them good things like that with great boldness and confidence because your righteousness is not your own. 2 Corinthians 5 Verse 17 starts out, says, if any man's in Christ, he is a new creation. All this old stuff's done with. The old things passed away. And behold, all things have become new. And the last verse of that is one of my most favorite verses because he says, him who knew no sin, he was made to be sin. That we might be what? Righteousness of what? The righteousness of what? In Christ Jesus. So the righteousness that we now have was gifted. The Bible says that in Romans 5, that the gift of righteousness. So righteousness is a gift. And so, it won't, listen, it won't do you any good to hear all this stuff about the righteousness of God if you don't own it yourself. 
You have to own this yourself. Now, see, for me, I would, as a Christian, I would say, when someone would theologically say, well, don't you know that you're the righteous of God in Christ? I would go, yes, amen, sure. I, it's in the Bible. I believe it. But listen, I believed it more in a theological mental way than I did in a practical experimental way or experiential way, not experimental, but experiential way. In other words, it didn't, didn't seem to have the oomph to help me every day in everyday life because to me it was more of a theological concept. A lot in the church have this view that God's just pretending that we're righteous. Well, yes, Brother Dale, that we're righteous in his eyes. There's no, that's nowhere in the Bible. Righteous, I've told you, is like being pregnant. You're not a little pregnant. You either is or you ain't. You're not a little righteous. I'm 50% righteous. No, you're either perfect, which is the righteousness that God gifted you, or you're not righteous at all. And, by the way, if you're not righteous, then God has nothing that he can offer you. Because the Bible says that it's the prayers of a righteous man that avails much. David said, I'm old and I have been young and I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. The Bible says many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of some of them. Oh, okay, excuse me, all of them. Do you see? And on and on it can go. The Bible says the righteous are as bold as a lion. You know why they're bold? Because they know their righteousness is not based on their performance. It's not based on their prayer life or Bible study or anything. It's based on Jesus' righteousness. So listen, if you're sitting here or listening to this with a feeling of unworthiness, please hear me now. I love you. That's why I'm telling you the truth. If you're having and battling with a feeling that I'm unworthy, See, some of you, people are made, listen, and a lot of your problems is preacher's faults like me that just didn't know what he's talking about. So at communion service, I, I remember being scared to even take communion. When I started dating this fine, good-looking thing here on the front row, she was a sweet Baptist girl. Now, I'd been raised in Pentecost. And, you know, we was a whole lot more serious about the Bible than them Baptists was. So we, we was holiness or hell. That's what our favorite saying, holiness or hell. So I, would have, I went to church with her. I wasn't going to church nowhere. I was majoring in heathenism at that time. I went to church with her, and I remember sitting in her Baptist church, and I just happened to be, we, I went on where they offered communion. And I refused it. I was the only person in that whole Baptist church that would not accept communion. And I remember she looked at me, you know, she looked at me, you know, she already knew I was a heathen, but then she thought I was really a heathen. I, I, I just said no. I waved it off. They passed it, I believe, that night. They passed it. I said no. And the guy was like trying to push the plate on me, you know. And I'm, you know, and he was like, I'm, I'm, I'm not taking it. And he looked at me like, like I was a Satan worshiper. And he went on to the next person. Why didn't Brother Dale take communion? Because I wasn't Brother Dale then, but I, why didn't I take communion? Because I thought God killed me dead. I was, I was steeped in sin. I had some sin in plan for after the church service if it would go my way. <laughs> Selah, pause, reflect, meditate. 
I'm just there to bide my time because that's what she got to do. Her parents made her go to church. So I'm just, I'm like, hurry up and get through. I want to go snuggle somewhere. I ain't about to take communion. I'm not serious about none of this. I'm just being sweet and going to church with her. But I had enough sense to know I wasn't right and didn't have no intention of getting right with God. And I ain't finna take that communion, so he got excuse to kill me now. After the service that night, she asked me, why didn't you take communion? I said, I wasn't about to. Why not? She didn't understand it. I said, well, God will kill you. You never read that in the Bible? It says in the Bible, God will kill you dead if you take it wrong. I said, I ain't about to give him a reason to kill me. I'm surprised I'm alive now. <laughs> but I thought as long as you didn't mess around in the church building, you know, you might have a chance to make it. Man, messed up view of God. God wasn't saying that at all. When in communion, when he says, let a man examine himself, again, it's like, what are you looking for? What was Paul telling the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to look for before they took communion? Look for Christ. Look for Jesus. Do you, do you know that Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. You're to, you're to look for Christ before you take communion next Sunday. You're not to look and examine yourself and see if you can find sin or faults or cracks or failures or any of that. Because I want to tell you, you're going to be able to find that. If you don't already know that, I want to shock you by telling you, you're going to be able to find sin even if you perceive that you're the best Christian in the building, which is no such thing, but you're going to find some errors in your life you're struggling with. Welcome to earth. You're still riding in the earth suit called flesh. And flesh is going to desire those things. I'm not saying sin, don't worry about it. It's just sin with, uh, you know, just help yourself. I've never said that. I get accused of that. So does anybody else that preaches grace. But I'm not saying sin is not a big deal. I'm saying sin is such a big deal that Jesus came to die on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. But him who knew no sin somehow became sin. Can you explain that? Not really. Not really. I put out a little article this week on our website. Those of you that, you know, you know it. It just, the title was, Did God Turn His Back on His Son Jesus on the Cross? Next Sunday, the church will be told that all over this country. That God is holy, so holy that He can't look upon sin. And therefore, when Jesus became sin, He turned His back on His Son. And some of you right now are Bible students and you're thinking, well, isn't that what it said? Didn't Jesus say on the cross that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did say that. How many believe that Jesus knew the Bible? It's not a hard question here. Maybe I didn't ask it. I asked it too. How many of you believe that even when Jesus walked the earth, he knew the Bible? The old covenant. New one hadn't been written yet. How many believe that the word knew the word? You, you do? You do believe that? Hey, how many of us in here before you ever even got born again had heard of Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. How many of you, even though you wasn't even a Christian and because you, you know, maybe saw it on the movies or something, but you kind of knew Psalm 23 that was in the Bible and you knew that was the 23rd Psalm and even though you might not even be a Christian, but you might even could have quoted a lot of the 23rd Psalm of the whole thing. Is that right? Before you even got saved, right? Let me tell you that there's verses, chapter 22 of Psalms, chapter 23, this, well, just chapter 24. It makes a trilogy 
prophetic trilogy. And every Jew knew that, that, those, those psalms. They knew it. And then Psalm 22 is a prophetic psalm written by David that shows details of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ with the very same expressions and quotes that Jesus said from the cross. How many would you believe and agree with me that even when Jesus was on the cross, he still knew Psalm 22? Now, I need you to answer this now because I want, it's going to help you with something if you depend on what you believe. Now, if you don't believe he knew the Bible, then you'll just have to work with that. But if you believe that Jesus Christ, when he hung on the cross, knew the 22nd Psalm, just as well as he would know the 23rd Psalm, if you believe that, then if you read the 22nd Psalm, it says in there very clearly, the, talking about the crucifixion, it said the Lord, he knew that the Lord would not turn his face from him. Well, why did he say, my God? By the way, that's the only time that Jesus ever called the Father God. He never called his Father God, except when he was dying on the cross, when he said those phrases, my God, my God. That's the only time he ever called him God. Notice, let me tell you what he didn't say. My father, my father, why have you forsaken me? I thought Jesus said something like, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. Did Jesus say that? Jesus was God in the flesh. So if God promised you and I that he would never leave us, never forsake us, and yet he turned around and forsook his own son on the cross, then what hope do you, me and you have? In other words, if God forsook Jesus on the cross because he became sin, then when you sin now, he'll have to forsake you. Can't have double standard. Are y'all okay this morning? Why did he say it, Brother Dale? He said, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Now, some of people will tell you, well, he just said that from a flesh perspective because he felt forsaken. I don't believe that. Maybe I would believe that. I would choose that if I didn't have the 22nd Psalm. But if I have the 22nd Psalm that says that he knows clearly that God will not turn his face from him, and I believe that Jesus did know the 22nd Psalm, then I have to say that he knew that he would, his father wouldn't turn his face from him. And I don't care that his son turned dark as sackcloth of ashes at 12 noon and the earth shook and all that. That doesn't mean God turned his back on his own son. And in fact, 2 Corinthians says that God was in Christ reconciling the sin of the world unto himself. So if God was in Christ, let me ask you this. Are you in this building? You're in this sanctuary right now. Really? How many believe you're in here? How many of you know you're in here? Turn your back on the sanctuary, please. Turn your face on the sanctuary. You can't because you're in here. Any way you turn, you're still in here. So if God was in Christ, how could God turn his face from his son? See, religion does that to us. You know what that used to do to me? Because I thought if God forsook his son and turned his back on him, God will forsake me. And the devil was right there to affirm, yes, God has forsaken you because you're a dirty, rotten sinner, and he, he, he despises you, and he's getting angry with you by the moment. And all of that is a lie because Jesus bore the penalty of our sin. And Jesus, listen, this is what, this is what it, the Bible said. Jesus said this out of his own mouth. He said, he said, the wicked one hath nothing in me or on me. Sin doesn't have any hold on my life. I'm almost done. Listen to me. Do, do you want to know what, what, the, the, what really the gospel of the cross really was? It was a rescue mission. 
Anybody ever seen that movie called uh, Taken? Liam Neeson? He's up there talking about movies. I can't believe it. <laughs> I don't recommend too many movies. But I, it's, I was thinking about Liam Neeson. You're, you know, he's got that, you know, that voice, you know. <laughs> and in this movie, on the other side of the country, they snatch his daughter. Going to put her into slavery or sexual slavery and all that stuff. And, and uh, she's, that's why it's called Taken. I don't know if you remember the movies. You know, that's the best when they try to do a bunch of them because it makes lots of money. But I just remember in that movie, he gets on the phone with them. I started to ask Joanne to play that little section. I actually found it on YouTube. So cool, so good. He, said, he tells them, he says, if you let her go, I will not pursue you. But if you do not, I will search for you, and I will find you, and I will kill you. Yes. I'm like, that's my impersonation of Liam. But let me tell you who the first one that did that. God the Father. Not the Godfather. But God the Father in the garden, when man sinned, he said to the serpent, from this day forward, you shall eat dust from the ground. Because you have done this thing. You may bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. What's God saying? I will kill you because you took my children from me. I will come for you. The first Navy SEAL, not Navy, but SEAL Team 3. SEAL Team 3 at the cross rescued me and you. The Father was in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and they sealed us with the blood of Jesus. We have been sealed until the day of redemption. We've been sealed, rescued. Now, if you read the New International Version or some of these other, it will say rescued. The King James uses the word delivered. He has delivered us. And so what happened on the cross was that sin did not take a hold of Jesus. Listen, but Jesus took a hold of sin. And he grabbed sin and he held it so tight while the Father, he held it where it would not squirm. It could not get away no more. And he held it to himself while God poured his wrath out upon sin. And he absorbed every bit of it. He absorbed every bit of it. An interesting thing for me has always been under the old covenant when they would offer sacrifices for sin, bullocks and lambs and rams and goats and so forth. They would burn those sacrifices, and when they got through, there would be nothing left of that sacrifice whatsoever. Bone, teeth, nothing. It would be burned by the fire. Is that right? But under the new covenant, when Jesus offered himself as the Lamb of God, he absorbed all the wrath of God 
In other words, under the old covenant, that fire that fell, that fire burning in the sacrifice was symbolic of the wrath of God. For our God is a consuming fire, they said. You with me? And so it wouldn't leave nothing. But when God's wrath was poured out upon the cross, upon sin, which his son had took to himself, when he got through, Jesus was still there. His body was still there. He wasn't ashes. He absorbed all the wrath of sin, and yet he was still there. They were still enough to bury. They were still enough to put in the tomb. And he was brought forth on the third day. God says, That's, I'm, I'm done with it. The power of sin has been broken off of mine in your life. And when God's in his word, you don't have to let these verses trouble you anymore. Now that I know the grace of God and God's love for me through his son Jesus, I read verses like that now, let a man examine himself. And I used to be just inundated with, I'm looking for sin. I'm looking to see if I got sin. Do I see sin? Yeah, every time I looked, I saw problems. I think if you can examine yourself and you don't see, I don't see anything but perfection in your own strength, you just sinned. <laughs> By the sin of arrogance and pride and really, come on. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just saying our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is in Jesus Christ. And, and the cross, religion paints the cross like this. You need to get saved because God's angry. You're despised. You're a criminal. It's almost like you have to apologize for being born. Nowhere in the Bible that says, you know, that you have problems because of Dale's transgression. I'm not saying Dale never transgressed or sinned, but there's no verse that says that I transgressed and that's the reason I'm having problems. Or your name either. It's always Adam's transgression. And it says in, in, in Romans that because of one man's disobedience, who was they talking about? Sin entered into the world and death through sin. Is that what it says, y'all? So by one man's, what, who was that man? See, so what happens is you and I were born, we were just born geographically in the wrong place. We were born in a prison. And let me tell you what religion tells you. Religion says uh, you need to uh, stop sinning and be better. And that's your, that's your ticket to heaven. You're like a criminal. That's not what the Bible says. That's what Jesus didn't say that, you know, your biggest problem, your greatest need from me is forgiveness. He didn't say that at all. Because God now has forgiven the world of sin, even though they haven't all received the benefit of that forgiveness. For God was in Christ reconciling the sin of the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses against them. Now say amen. That was all Bible. So God's forgiven the world. Jesus is the lamb took away the sin of the world. They have not all received that forgiveness by believing upon him. But listen to me. I'm almost done. The greatest need that you and I have is not for forgiveness. Because, listen, because forgiveness does not equal salvation. If I asked the average Christian, can you explain to me what happened when you got saved? They'd say, Brother Dale, I came down and I confessed my sin and I got saved. I was forgiven. That's partially true. That's partially true. But Jesus didn't say, that I have come that you might be forgiven. But he said, I have come that they might have what? Life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe upon him should not what? But have what? Notice it didn't say have forgiveness. But have what kind of life? Not temporary life. 
life from Sunday to Sunday as long as you keep the confessional chart real clean and pretty and good? No, that you'll have everlasting life. That's what Jesus came to die for. That's what Jesus came to die for. And if you've received that life from Christ, then you've received everlasting life. And you don't have to fear anything else because you can't lose what you didn't find. God will never unchild his children. And God will never forsake you. And he'll never. Listen to me. God loves you when you was born and you was a baby. And God loved you and will love you when you get old. God will love you when you do good, and God will love you when you do bad. That is the perfect truth of the gospel because the Bible says that in Romans. For while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love. God demonstrated his love in that Christ died for us. Why did he die for us? Let me tell you why he didn't die. He didn't die to satisfy some bloodletting need, some legal need to shed blood. No, he died, he said in that verse, because he loved you. And God don't change. Himself and his character, he does not change. God loves you, and there's not a thing you can do or undo to get away from that love. That changes everything with me in my view of God. God loves us. He always has, and he always will. And he's not going to forsake you. And even your sin is not able or strong enough to pull you away from the love that's in Christ Jesus. He's going to always be there for you. He's going to always love you. He always has, he always will. God's not angry anymore because Jesus absorbed the anger of God. And that says that in Isaiah. He said, this is like the waters of Noah to me. Never will I be angry with you again. And I realize a lot of the church today and even a lot of preachers unknowingly, unwittingly preach an angry God to very terrified people. One of the worst sermons that America ever was preached was sinners in the hands of an angry God. Well, isn't he mad with sinners? He's no more mad with sinners than he is with saints. Because his anger, his wrath has been appeased. Jesus is the propitiation, appeasing, acceptable sacrifice. Not only for the sins of those who confess their sins, but for the sins of the entire world. That's what the Bible says. And if we would just believe the gospel. So how do we rid ourselves of this badgering, depressing feeling of unworthiness? Stop believing the lies of the enemy. And start believing the truth of the gospel. Believe that your righteousness was a gift. The Bible says the wages of sin is, but the gift of God is eternal life. See, sin produces wages, a paycheck. You earn that. But righteousness is a gift. Everlasting life is a gift. You're gifted that. Wages of sin, that's death. But the gift of God, the gift of righteousness, the gift of holiness. It's gifted. You don't grow in that. Now listen, let me be clear. I hope that as I grow, that I will be able to display for your view more of the righteousness of God that's been placed on the inside of me. The Bible says that in Hebrews that, that, that God is the father of, the, and, uh, of uh, the spirits of just men made perfect. Where did I get made perfect at, Brother Dale? You said that we got to be perfect. You are in your spirit. When you got born again, the part of you that got really born again was your spirit that was dead. Now it's been made alive. And that part of you is as ready for heaven as it will ever be. Now as we yield to that spirit, the Holy Spirit that now indwells us, we can learn how to manifest more of the presence of the 
the righteousness of God that's in Christ. But whether I look righteous to you or not, by your standard, I am righteous before God by his standard because he's gifted his son's righteousness to me as a gift. And all you got to do is not just simply say, I believe it, but you got to receive it. You got to own it as yours. And when you know this deep down and nothing else can argue out of this, your Christian walk just changes. Your prayer life just changed. What you're able to receive from God for yourselves and for others just changed. Because now you will boldly come before the throne room of grace. Because the righteousness are bold as a lion. You'll come because you know that, that God hears my prayer every time I pray. That I'm his kid always. He's not angry with me. He's not upset with me. He's not disappointed with me. I'm not trying to please him. I already please him just by being born again. And it changes everything in your life. Can you see that? The gospel, the good news of the cross, is that Jesus rescued us. Seal Team 3 got me from the prison of death. See, the problem is we were born in a prison called sin. That's where you arrived on earth. You was already, see, the world thinks they're free anyway. Jesus, didn't say, Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You know who he said that to? The scribes and the Pharisees in John chapter 8. He said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know what their reply to that was? They said, never have we been in bondage to any man. We are the seed of Abraham. Jesus said, no, your father is the devil. He went Bobby Boucher on them, if you don't know what that means. He said, no, your father's the devil. I'm am I in the book or not? Not the Bobby Boucher part, but if you don't know what it means, don't even worry about it. He said, no, the devil's your father, and the lust of the devil will you do. See, they said, we're not in bondage. Listen, the world thinks they're free. Listen, you're not, yeah, you're free. You're free to choose which cell you're going to sleep in, which bunk you're going to sleep in. That's not free, y'all. You say, well, I'm, in, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm free. You're in prison, man. You're not free. Oh, you might get to pick whether you eat green beans or not, but that's not freedom. That's fake freedom. That's why the Bible says Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is not fake free, but really free. Free indeed. Freed from what? Freed from the power and the bondage of sin. Sin is still evident. Sin still goes, but the, it don't have any power, dominion over you. I'm about to get happy, Pastor Keith. Listen. Okay, here comes the rescue mission. I'm about done. Listen. Moses. Moses is a deliverer, right? He is a perfect type in the shadow of Jesus. Pharaoh is the devil. Egypt is the prison, the bondage. They're slaves to Pharaoh. The Hebrews are all in slavery, been slavery 430 years. Here comes, the, listen, here comes their savior, their deliverer. He's come to, listen, to rescue them. Why is Moses such a great rescuer or deliverer? Listen, because he is the only Hebrew that Pharaoh don't own. He's a Hebrew just like all the Hebrews in slavery, but he's the only Hebrew that Pharaoh does not own. And because he's not owned by Pharaoh, he's able to go to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Let them go. And through the backup and the power of God, he leads them out of bondage. And what does God show us about Pharaoh and his power, Satan and sin? He's drowned at the bottom of the Red Sea. That's what God says about it. You, you snatch my daughter, I kill you. Sin. 
I will destroy you on the cross. You took my wife. You snatched her from me. I told you I would come for you. I told you I would come. That's what God did. That's what God did. He rescued you. He's not trying to satisfy some religious deal. He's, he's rescuing his wife. He's rescuing his wife. So here comes Jesus. Why is Jesus the perfect rescuer? Because he's a man, but he's the only man that is in the world, but is not of the world. Because Jesus is not of Adam. He's not of Adam. And because he's not of Adam, he's able to rescue those who are in Adam, in sin. He's not of Adam. He's like, I, I didn't come, I'm, I'm not of this world. I'm in the world. I'm in a real earth suit, but I'm not of Adam. Sin has no hold on me. Satan has no dominion in me. I'm, listen, listen. If you're in prison and you need to be liberated, you got to have outside help. If you in the inside, you got to have help from the outside. Jesus is the perfect example of, he is the definition of outside help. Jesus from the outside came into the prison and said, let my people go. You get your hands off my wife. And on the cross, the power of sin to dominate you. Listen, because sin has no dominion on Christ, no power to bring you into bondage against your will, sin today has no power over the believer to bring them in bondage against their will. You have to co-labor and cooperate with sin to be in bondage to it. Boy, that's good news. Come on, stand to your feet and give God praise. Come on, praise him, praise him, praise him. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. Thank God for Jesus that rescued us from the power, the dominion, and the bondage of sin. I pray today that every man, every woman, boy and girl listening to this would examine themselves to see whether they're in the faith or not. That they would test themselves. And I pray as they examine themselves, they look for that one, one person that can deliver them, and that's Jesus. That we're in Christ, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If any man's in Christ, we're in Christ. Our, our geography has changed when we accepted you. We were born in sin and in bondage and in a prison. But, Lord God, now we are in Christ. We thank you for that. Thank you for that, Father. Look at me. Paul said this. It'll be talked about a lot next Sunday, probably even in this house, the resurrection. Paul said that, if me preaching the resurrection is not true, if the, listen, he said, if the resurrection is not true, he said, then our faith is futile. And, th and this is what he said. Is that what he said, y'all? And he said, and you are still in your sin. If the resurrection didn't happen, you're still in your sin. Jesus did die on the cross, but dying on the cross wasn't enough. He had to not only die on the cross, but he had to be resurrected from the tomb. 
You're no longer in your sin if you're in Christ. Your geography has changed. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. In Adam, all what? Die. In Christ, all what? Live. What happened at the new birth? God took you out of Adam. He put you in Christ. Is Christ holy? Then you're holy. Is Christ righteous? Then you're righteous. Is Christ seated at the right hand of the Father? Then you're seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Does Christ have the favor of the Father? Then you have the favor of the Father. Does God love the Father? I mean, does God love Christ? Does the Father love Christ? Then he loves you. Is God pleased with his Son? Then God's pleased with you because you're in Christ. I don't know how much good news you can take in one Sunday service. But you ought to have spiritual sugar diabetes right now for all this sugar I put on you. I mean, I'm telling you that's the truth and that's the gospel. You understand what I'm saying? God loves you. Always has, always will. He's not mad with you. He's not holding your sins against you. He don't want you to sin because he loves you. Sin hurts. Hurts you, it hurts people he loves. Don't do it. Yield to him. Walk in the freedom and the liberty that Christ has set you free from. Would you do that? Ushers come, ushers. Elders. Ushers too, I don't care. Elders come. <laughs> Ministry team for prayer come. I'm going to dismiss the church in about two minutes. As always at Grace Point, it is our honor, privilege, and responsibility to, to pray with you, and we love to do that. Um, if you want prayer for any reason, then we'll pray with you. You don't ever have to drive off from this church ground and say, man, I wish they would have prayed or give me an opportunity for prayer, help, or if you just want to come up and talk about something. And Now, we're not going to go into a counseling session up front, but we will sure talk to you and, and uh, pray with you, and we'll set up a counseling session. We can do that. But we love you. We want to serve you well. Um, please consider this before I dismiss you, church. Please sincerely hear me. Bring somebody to church. You know, next Sunday's a, I know it's a traditional day, and this church will be filled. We'll have room. But um, a lot of people are more open to consider going to church on Easter than any other Sunday of the year. If you've got family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, those that are not church somewhere in church that need a message of hope and truth that will set them free, please invite them. Bring them. Tell them you'll come by and get them. Tell them I'll be your Sunday Uber. I will Uber you to church. Bring them to the house of the Lord. Let them hear the gospel, the good news that God's not mad, that God loves them and he's forgiven them. Let them receive that free gift of righteousness in Jesus. If you want prayer for any reason, then I want you to come. When I dismiss the church, you come this way. Church, we love you. God bless you. Hope to see you Wednesday night in the service here at 7 o'clock for our teaching. So, Father, I just pray today that every person here and those that hear this will receive you as their Savior if they've not already done so, that they will know what a great Father you are and how much you love them. Let them receive that love in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, church.
If you want prayer, please come this way. We love you. God bless you.